God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be among those who over time grow cold to Christ. That we would not be the people who are like this old cynic said, an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. That we would be people whose love for Christ burns bright for a lifetime. And that all the way to the end we are persevering in faith in Him. And that nothing turns us aside from what we have said with our mouth. May it also be true in our heart. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible open, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, I want you to look closely at the first part of verse 7 here, where it says, Do you see where it says, The Holy Spirit says? And then the rest of what follows is an Old Testament quote. We'll get into that in a second. But I want you to notice how the writer of Hebrews, first of all, views the Old Testament Scriptures. He says that where the Scriptures speak, the Holy Spirit speaks. Amen? That where you have words in here, what you have is not simply words of men, but you have the voice of God in words given to men. Amen? So that, so that the Scriptures are not something you can simply set aside as if they are some other random book that some, some fellow you know, got on an island somewhere and you know, penned it. You know, it. The Scriptures did not come to us because Paul looked out, you know, on a on a on a on the beach uh, there in, in Greece and thought, you know, huh? I think I'll write Romans today. That's not how it happened. That when the scriptures came, they came through the Holy Spirit, and where the scriptures speak, God speaks. Amen. So. Uh, they are not, therefore, some sort of spiritual cafeteria that we can uh, belly up to and then you know, pick and choose that which we will obey and ignore. Where the Scriptures speak, the, the God speaks, and His Word is meant to not only be read and heard, but obeyed. And the reason I emphasize that is because of this particular quote that he does pull out. And it's from Psalm 95. Now, you might not recognize Psalm 95, but every Jew who had grown up in the synagogue did, because every week, it's my understanding, every week at the time Hebrews is written, they would read Psalm 95 as the call to worship. And it begins like this, "'O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation.'" That's verse 1. And the first six and a half verses of Psalm 95 continue more or less in that vein of inviting people to worship the Lord and celebrate their relationship with Him. But about midway through, 
It takes a turn. And what we have here in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 7 to 11, is the remainder of Psalm 95, which is a warning. In other words, if you will not come and you will not worship God, be aware that there is another side of the coin. And there's a warning from God that's here. And it these and 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 the writer of Hebrews picks this out, I think, because it is something that was read every week as the call to worship. And these he's writing to a group of people who became Christians as adults out of the Jewish synagogue. And so this is something that they would have heard literally thousands of times. Thousands of times. As they were growing up and as they became adults, they, they would have been able to recite right along with the rabbi every word of this. Just like if you grew up in the church, you know the, all the words to amazing grace. They knew this. And he is calling them to notice the warning at the end of that. Because it's possible to hear something, to grow up in a spiritual place where you are taught the Word of God and to hear His Word thousands and thousands and thousands of times and ignore what it actually says. And that's part of the fear that the writer of Hebrews has for the people who are reading his letter is that they will have heard the Word of God, they'll have seen Jesus' work in their life. They'll have seen what happens uh, in the church. They'll have heard all these things, seen all this stuff happen to other people, and they will ignore what God's Word says to them. Now, if you look at the text itself, you'll see that it refers back to Israel's history. And it uses two words uh, repeatedly. It talks about testing. Your fathers put me the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. And it also uses the word rebellion. Now, if you, if you go back to Psalm 95, Psalm 95 is in your Old Testament and it's written in Hebrew. And those Hebrew words, testing and rebellion, are specific words. They're actually the name of a place, believe it or not. Uh, the place is called Massah and Meribah. Exodus chapter 17, uh, the Israelites have just come out of, of Egypt. They've seen the plagues. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've seen Pharaoh's army drown. They've gotten water from the rock, and they have been provided for every step of the way. The manna from heaven has begun to fall, and they, in fact, that very morning have picked it up off of the ground and ate. And Yet they get to this place that becomes known as Massah and Meribah, and there is no water. And so they begin to complain against Moses and complain against the Lord, and they say, is the Lord really with us or not? Well, now this is like a week out of the Exodus. This is, this is like, seriously, seven days after they've crossed the Red Sea. And they're eating the manna God provides from heaven every morning. And they've eaten it that morning, and they say, I'm not really sure if God is with us or not. And so 
God, God says, we're going to name this place Rebellion and Testing. Or if you, will prefer, if you prefer, Revolt and Griping. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can also go that way with it. You know, that, that word Meribah has kind of a range of meaning. But complaining is probably a nice way of saying it. All right? They complained over against the God who is continuing to provide for them at that very instant. The food he gave them is still in their guts. And they say, I don't know if God is really with us. And God uses the same words about a year later to describe another rebellion that they have against God. Remember, they, they go to this place called Kadesh Barnea, and they send 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the land. And they go up from the south, and they spy out the whole promised land. And they come back, and they're carrying this giant cluster of grapes that's so big they have to carry it on a pole between them. And they say, it's a good land, it's a fruitful land, and it's amazing. And two of the spies say, it's so good that we've got to go take it. It's God's promised land. We're going to have it. It's going to be ours. Remember? Joshua and Caleb. They're about 40 years old at this time, and they say, let's go get it. And all the other spies, all the other ten, say, uh, yeah, it's a good land, but there's a lot of people that are big that live there. There's giants compared to us that live in this land, and we look like grasshoppers to them, and we felt like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and it will devour us and our children, and we will all die. We can't go in there. And they persuaded the people. And the people said, they cried out against the Lord again. And they said, you've led us out of Egypt to die. And they start organizing an expedition again back to Egypt. Better that we were slaves in Egypt and had died there. We want to go back to Egypt. Let's find us some leaders that will take us back there. I mean, at least... At least we didn't, didn't have to get killed by the giants. We could get killed by the Egyptians in slavery. That'd be better. And that's what, they, that's what they decide to do. And God says, very well, you won't go into the land that I have given you? Fine. You won't be allowed to go into the land that I've given you. Until the last one of you who is 20 years old and older dies in the desert. And so for 40 years, they wander around in the desert. You know, people make jokes sometimes about Moses, you know, that Moses, uh, he clearly didn't listen to his wife because he wandered around lost for 40 years, right? (laughs) Wouldn't ask for directions. But no, he knew where he was supposed to be. And he couldn't take the people in there because of their rebellion. And this passage is being used by the writer of Hebrews very specifically. It's a touchstone 
for everybody who is of Jewish heritage. You, everybody knew you did not want to be like the people of the Exodus generation who through unbelief were kept from God's blessing. Because of their rebellion, they didn't get to go into the land. And the children that they said were going to be devoured by the giants were the ones who got to go in and enjoy the land. Joshua and Caleb, you know, those are two of my favorite guys in my Old Testament. Caleb's my absolute favorite because at 85 years old, he says, you know, Joshua, when we were young men once upon a time, I went into the land with you, and I saw the land of my inheritance there in Hebron, where the biggest of the giants live, and I want to go get it. Give it to me. He's 85, okay? And he's like, let me strap my sword on. I can get them. (laughs) They're too big to miss, all right? And God gives him the land. He does. God gives him the land that's held by these giants, He takes his inheritance at 85. By the way, uh, just by word of encouragement, you are never too old to serve the Lord. Amen? That guy's a great hero in that. But he says to them, he quotes this passage to them because he's wanting them to understand that if you turn back from Jesus, that you are committing the same sin as the Exodus generation who, because of unbelief, were forbidden to enter the promised land. Because of unbelief and rebellion. And they need to hear and obey God's word to them, just as the Exodus generation needed to hear and obey God's word to them. Uh, So he says, you need to obey God's word, and you also need to flee from unbelief. Look at verse 12 and 13 with me. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, unbelie- an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, now, I want you to see just a couple things in this text, uh, these two verses. First, notice that falling away from God is not some benign and harmless thing. And it is not the natural result of some process of becoming more mature. Uh, Maybe you've had somebody give you that explanation once upon a time. You ask somebody that, uh, that once walked with the Lord, or at least purported to walk with the Lord, what happened to you? Where, where you been? How come you're not in church anymore? How come you don't read your Bible anymore? How come... In fact, your Bible is just a book on your shelf. What's up with that? And they'll say something to you. I've had this happen to me. I had someone tell me, actually, in the last month, you know, well, I used to believe like you do. But now, I think I've grown up a little bit, and I just can't believe that stuff anymore. Is that the explanation that's here? Look at how the Lord sees it. It's the overflow of, first of all, unbelief. And second of all, what the Scripture calls evil. 
You know, I, I just want to tell you something, okay? I have had times where I have not wanted the Scripture to be true. True story, okay? Uh, I have had times where I have had serious doubts about whether or not the Scripture was true because I really wanted it not to be in certain areas, right? And, and you know what the underlying factor in all of that was? That I was engaged in at that moment some kind of sin I did not want to let go of. And so the Bible says an evil, unbelieving heart. The two are tied together. You are engaged in evil and therefore you are unbelieving. Or you're unbelieving because you're engaged in sin. He says, see to it that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart. And that's what leads you to fall away from God. It isn't innocent, in other words. It isn't as a result of, you know, well, I don't, you know, I don't believe in Jesus just like I don't believe in the tooth fairy. You know, no one does that anymore, right? No, you don't believe because you have an evil, unbelieving heart. And he's wanting to warn them what turning aside from Christ really means and what the real motives of a, of a heart that engages in rebellion against God are. That, that if you turn away from God, your motives are revealed. And what it reveals is a heart of unbelief and sin. And we also need to see that we have a responsibility for one another in the body of of Christ. Amen? Look at verse 13. It says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, by the way, every day is called today, right? Every day when you wake up, what is it? It's today, <laughs> right? Uh, the next day will be tomorrow, but when you get there, it'll be today, right? So in other words, until eternity comes, we have a responsibility to each other to exhort one another. Now, I know this is not a popular thing because we live in a very individual-focused culture, right? You don't even have to buy the whole album anymore. You can just buy the one song you want to dance to, right, or sing in your car along with. Uh, we, because we're focused on the individual and what the individual wants. And so we don't like when somebody crowds us and gets in our face and, and pokes us and says, stop doing that. That way leads to rebellion. Don't go there. We don't like that. We say, hey, stop judging me. Don't do that. Don't say that to me. You don't, you don't have the right to judge me. You can't tell me what to do, right? But the Scripture says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. In other words, until Jesus comes, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, the, the reality is, is that sin is, is tricky. 
And the person that we succeed in deceiving most when we're engaged in it is ourselves. And all of a sudden, you know, we get into this and we start making excuses for ourselves and we start rationalizing and we start explaining away and we start, uh, you know, looking for other people who are also participating. And pretty soon we're all wrapped up like, you know, like Frodo in Lord of the Rings by that big spider, you know. Like, he doesn't realize he's caught until he's caught. Because sin is deceitful. And you need Samwise alongside you to cut you loose, right? And help you to escape from the deceitfulness of sin. You need a brother and a sister to stand along with you. That's part of the responsibility of being in the family of God, is mutual exhortation away from rebellion and unbelief. Imagine what the outcome would have been, as an example, if instead of there being two spies that said, uh, don't go into the land, and instead of that, if there had been ten spies who said... If there had been two spies that said, don't go in, and ten that said, yeah, we got to go. Well, which would the crowd have gone with? They'd have gone with the majority instead of the minority, right? But those, those ten unbelieving guys swayed the whole nation. And he says, look, you've got to exhort one another every day. We have a responsibility to watch over each other and to and to draw each other back into the believing community. And to, exp- and to point out where somebody is, is disobedient to God and is living in rebellion and unbelief. And the Scripture says, Today, if you hear His voice, obey and flee from unbelief. Amen? And if you do that... On verses 14 and 19 say that your faith will be proved genuine. Now, read these verses with me. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I want you to do this again for me this week. Verse 14, circle that little word, if, in your Bible. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that the proof of genuine faith in Christ is that it lasts to the end of our lives. That it lasts. It's not the kind of faith that says, well, I accepted Christ when I was eight years old in VBS, but I haven't given a thought to obeying Him since then. That is not, according to the Scriptures, saving faith. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is a faith which lasts to the end of your life, however long the end of your life is. 
you know, God saved uh, the thief on the cross who believed in Christ as he's hanging there dying to encourage everyone who is a sinner that there is no point at which it's too late until you die. But notice that he didn't save the other one who was also hanging there next to Jesus. Though he heard the same things. Though he saw the same things happen with Jesus. That man never turned to Christ in faith. Uh, Let me encourage us all here just a minute on this because this is hard. This is hard teaching. I know there's some personal stories a lot of times attached to this. Because it's hard to tell sometimes whether someone is the prodigal son who will one day come home or whether they have departed from us, as John says in his first letter, because they were not of us. Hard to tell sometimes. Theologically, this, this teaching that, that time proves faith is genuine, and genuine faith is that which lasts, it, theologically, the term for that is called perseverance of the saints. But I don't actually like that term real well, because I think it confuses people, that as, as if somehow um, our faith is all up to us, and if you just don't crank up enough faith, well, then you're going to be lost. Uh, that's not what the Scripture teaches. Here's the scriptural teaching, that, that genuine faith is given by grace by the Spirit who indwells us as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance in the kingdom, as Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tell you. That the Holy, when you come to genuine faith, that the Holy Spirit is given to you as a deposit that guarantees your future inheritance in the kingdom of God. And Jesus keeps us in faith by His gracious power, just like John's Gospel, uh, chapter 10, verse 28 says. And on top of that, the Father holds us in His mighty hand and keeps us in the faith as John 29 and 30, or 10, 29 and 30 tell us. So if your faith is real, you don't need to worry. Well, maybe I'm not going to make it. If your faith is real, you don't need to worry. Because Christ and the Spirit and the Father all persevere in saving us by grace through faith. And so the better term is probably something like the perseverance of the gracious triune God on behalf of His saints. Amen? I like that a whole lot better. It's a lot more words, but it's a whole lot more accurate to what the Scripture teaches. The perseverance of the gracious triune God on behalf of His saints. But nevertheless, this passage is a stern warning against people who think that somehow faith comes by osmosis, or simply by being associated with a group of people who possess it. Verse 16 to 18 consists of three pairs of questions. And the, and the first question in each pair asks a question, and then the second question in each pair answers it with a question. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of an interesting rhetorical device. But uh, look at the first one here. It says, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? And the answer, if you want to state it in a sentence, is 
everybody who left Egypt with Moses at the Exodus. Who rebelled? Everybody but everybody but Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron, a couple of others. Everybody else, the overwhelming majority, the very same people who saw the plagues fall on Egypt, who crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, who saw Pharaoh's army drown in the same sea, who ate the manna from heaven, who drank the water from the rock, who heard God speak on Mount Sinai, those very same people were the ones who rebelled. And the very, and, and, the, and those same people were the ones. Uh, uh, verse 17, who the Lord was provoked with for 40 years as they rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and rebelled over and over and over. If you've not read Exodus and Numbers uh, yet, you ought to do that sometime because you'll get the sense that these are the most rebellious people that have ever been except for you and I, <laughs> all right? Because they constantly are rebelling against Moses, against Aaron, against the Lord, uh, constantly wanting out of the situation they're in rather than trust the Lord through it. He says, and to whom, uh, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? those who were disobedient. A million, think about this, a million sandy graves filled up in the desert outside the promised land with all those who rebelled and they were prevented from experiencing the rest from the wilderness wandering that God had promised. And verse 19 reiterates the point. They were not able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. And here's the point. This is why Hebrews 3 takes such pains at the beginning to reiterate that Jesus is greater than Moses. Because rebellion against Moses only meant that you didn't enter the promised land. There were people within that group who genuinely believed in God and who, and who nevertheless died in the desert because this rebellion uh, brought consequences. But nevertheless, they continued in their relationship with God. Uh, there were people, in fact, in, in fact, even Moses was prevented from entering the land. Do you remember that? So it wasn't that everybody who died in the desert was necessarily someone who had no relationship with God. But the reason for the parallel is this, that the promised land is a shadow, not the reality. And Moses was a a shadow and a picture of a greater leader who was to come named Jesus. And Jesus will lead one day his people over the Jordan into the promised land that is the greater fulfillment. Amen? Not into a place that is bordered by the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River and the Wadi in Egypt and so forth. Not that place, but to the new heavens and the new earth where God's rest is permanent. 
and where there are no enemies to conquer because all the enemies have been defeated by King Jesus. Amen? There is a, a future rest that's coming. That, In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 is all about that. But the consequences of rebelling against Jesus, of turning back from his leadership, are much more serious. It's not simply not entering a piece of geography which your ancestors were promised. It's not entering into eternal life. And that's a much more serious thing because Jesus is greater than Moses. And we need to hear God's Word on this. Amen? We need to hear what the Spirit says to the church. So today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Amen? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Do not let your initial profession be proved false by unbelief and turning back from Jesus. Three things I want to just reiterate here before we close. Number one, faith is individual and personal. It is individual and personal. Don't think that coming to church makes you a Christian. Church does not make you a Christian any more than going into your garage makes you the car. Amen? You can't, by being in a place, pick up genuine faith by osmosis. It doesn't come that way. You put your personal trust in Jesus Christ. And if there has been no change in your life since you professed faith in Christ, it could be because there has been no change in your heart. Faith is individual and personal, and you have to put your individual trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, number two, don't go back. Don't go back to Egypt and to slavery. Amen? That's what all the people of Israel wanted to do. They said, Moses, you let us out here to die in the desert, and you're an idiot, and we're going back to Egypt because our life was better when we were enslaved. And a lot of people, when the pressure is on, when the pressure comes against them for their faith in Christ, what they do is they organize a tour group headed back to Egypt. They decide, I've had enough of this stuff. I'm going back to my former life because that was easier. There are a lot of people who used to do a lot of things before they heard the gospel. Some were great sinners in outward and obvious ways. And some were religious people who made, whose religion made them think that they weren't sinners. But today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Don't return to your former life. Don't return there. Far better to, to look forward to the glory of Christ than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Amen? Don't swap God's gracious gift for outward religion that has no power to save. Don't go back 
to your former life. Because only slavery and death await you there. Amen? Now, last thing. Don't go home today. Do not go home without making absolutely certain that you know the Lord. If you are not absolutely certain that you could walk out on 29, get hit by a car, and go to glory, don't go home. I'm serious. I am serious as grandma's heart attack on this. Do not go home without knowing for certain where you will go if something would happen to you. Do not go home. Because here is the reality. I don't want to leave any of us without hope. This is kind of a downer message. It really is. Because it's very, very stern in what it says. But here's the glorious good news of the Bible. That God's grace is so magnificent, so sufficient, so incredible, that there is no one who can fall beneath it. No one. But it does take genuine faith in Jesus Christ to enter into eternal life. And this is what you need to understand and believe. You need to believe, first of all, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who um, took on a human nature so that He could be a, a, just like us in every way and yet remain God, so that when He died on the cross as your substitute, that all of the penalty for your sin and for my sin could be poured out on Him, and His death would have sufficient value to cover everybody in the human race. He'd be a perfect substitute and also perfect God, so that His death covers all of us. And that He did not stay dead, but rose from the dead, to give new life to you and to me and to every person who would put their trust in Him. And all you've got to do is swap the life you're living today. You're old and busted and non-functioning and enslaved and leads to death life or new life in Christ. Amen? All you have to do is say to Jesus, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for me and my sin, the sin that I committed and that I deserve to die for, but I am making a swap. My sin for Jesus' righteousness. I want my life to trade it in for eternal life from Him. And if you make that swap, you have at this very moment eternal life. Amen? At this very moment. But make sure that you know the living Christ. Because showing up here on Sunday morning, even on a Sunday where only the elect are here, (laughs) because the snow has fallen, make sure that you know the living Christ. Amen? Don't be like those people who thought, I'm going to the promised land simply because I got out of Egypt. Don't do that. Amen? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, obey God and follow His Son. Amen?
Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your magnificent, amazing, all-sufficient grace. Grace that is sufficient even for me. That reaches so low that no human being, whether murderer, rapist, molester, drug addict, drunk, politician, whatever, The worst of sinners and the most religious are all captured by the grace of God if we will but turn in trust to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if anyone is here and has never put their trust in Jesus Christ, that they would do so right now. That none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and ensnared by it but that Your grace would cut us loose, set us free to live the new life that You have offered to us in Christ. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.